listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Do you think this is the most fatigued the two of us have ever been at the same time for a podcast? Oh, for sure. Uh, so let's average out our night's sleep for the past, let's call it, I don't know, three or four nights. Where are you at? Between one and, if I'm being optimistic, four hours, but it's been interval work style. We're probably the longest chunk I've had during the night is 40 minutes. And that might be generous. I got a two hour, two and a half hour block the other morning from, from like six to eight 30. And that was, that was big. Well, as we know, interval work, interval work is effective Bracken. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. is it in the sleep world? Probably not. I think I'm on Three and a half to four hours for, let me think, Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. So three nights straight. I don't think I got more than four hours myself either. Um, all self-inflicted, of course, but nonetheless, Bracken and I turned on uh, turned on to record this morning. It's a Monday morning. I was gone all weekend camping and deer hunting, and you had sick kids. <laughs> and we both look at each other like, oh, boy, it, <laughs> this is, is going to be one today, isn't it? Yeah, so you've been hunting, and yep. spoiler alert, you and Jess both got a deer. Uh, yeah, we did on the week, the opening weekend. And she just worked you. Oh, I'm so proud of her. She totally did, yeah. It was fantastic. That comes with late nights, and I mean, we didn't get back to the camper till we don't think we went to bed till like 3.30 in the morning by the time that was all said and done one night, and then up again at 5 to go back out in the woods the next morning you know it's like one of those deals but yeah and t- tell me about your kids when our children all decided to uh get that like 20 that one day stomach bug this week but they decided to stagger it which is nice that you don't have to deal with three vomiting kids at once but mm-hmm. then you get to draw it out over you know two to two nights per kid and mm-hmm. none of them have the uh the decency to throw up when the sun's up how dare them <laughs> it's all one started at one thirty in the morning and one started at 11.30 at night. So, I mean, that just takes out your whole night. So, both, yeah, both of us were burning it at both ends. Both of us had very dirty hands, but for different reasons. <laughs> it's very true. Very true. I was just talking with Jared Price on Friday, I want to say, and he's out. Elk season just started. He's out in Idaho, and he's out at Elk Camp. Oh, I've been kept in the loop by his uh, his buddy Sean White. I believe it. Mm-hmm. But what I what I forget, being a non hunter myself, mm-hmm. is that the prep. I know the prep's big. I know that the the hunt is big, but that at the moment you release your arrow, or the moment you send a bullet, uh, the time clock starts ticking, and it's in the hours. It's not in the minutes of what happens between then and the moment you take your first rest. And I know it's a little different when you're up 
hiking into the mountains for elk, but the, the fact that it is hours of hard work that begins the moment you hit a deer or an elk or whatever you're hunting for. I, I forget that part because I've never been on that end. So it's true, especially when it's warm out and it's warm, it's warm out. Like I, I've, I've helped people process their deer, but I've never been in the woods when it gets hit and you have a lot that goes into it. So he, he was talking, yeah, I might just go out. I said, why don't you just go out the next morning? He's like, yeah, it's, that's good. But it's like three to four hours if I hit an elk. And if it drops in that moment right there, dead on the ground, it's like three to four hours before I can even get in the truck and leave. And I forget about that point. Yeah. And we were, both of our, our deer were taken on public land and some of them were hikes to get back. And uh, I got video that I'll probably share on social media, but um, the amount of work that goes into once it's that happens and then getting uh, the animal mm-hmm. out. And um, I sweat through like all of my clothes to the point where I could wring them out. My shoes and boots are sloshing and from my own sweat dripping down my legs into my boots to the point where like if you could wring out a boot, you would, but you turn it upside down and your sweat dumps out. Um, I think when in the morning from the time walking in and coming out, I think it was like 17,000 steps just in the morning session, also hauling a deer out of the woods. The point yeah. point being, yes, there's there's a lot involved. It's it's uh it's Spartan training in disguise, as I like to say, or hybrid training. So I got that feather in my cap. You don't, Bracken. And I don't know what good cleaning up throw up does for your fitness intermittent, but I think I still come out ahead of you on this weekend with the sleep deprivation. Is what I'm getting at in a physiological training sense. So yeah, I guess I would be better suited for an overnight race right now. <laughs> you would well, not right now, not, but not maybe. than you, just than I was a week ago. Probably than me. Yeah. Tangential, tangential. Mm-hmm. Shall but here we, we are. On? We shall. Um, <clears throat> what do you want to start this conversation? Because we have a number of things we want to get into today. We want to do it in about an hour. One more tangent. Just a yes. quick PSA for the people. If you're listening to this podcast, you either are related to us or you really like running. <laughs> so if you like running, we I actually said this one other time. It was before Elio Kipchoge's last marathon that we don't know how many of the GOAT races we have left. But this reminds me of when Michael Jordan uh, came out of retirement for the second time. And you realize... The end is nigh. It's coming. And we have the greatest long-distance racer of all time, in my opinion, in Eliud Kipchoge. He's running the Berlin Marathon in on Saturday, I believe Saturday morning. And this might be the last time we ever see him fit and healthy and young enough to be just out of this world fast. He's planning on doing the next Olympics. He's planning on running, I think it's Paris... He's planning on doing, um, but we never know. Having watched Kirk and I, you know that once you get into your mid to late thirties, the next season is never guaranteed. Mm-hmm. And and we we have we everything we know about him right now is that he's had a good training block. He's talking. I might be able to take down my world record, and I'm I don't want to say I'm going to run under two, but I hope that. I'll run under two without a, you know, that Monza setup, that pace car setup. So he's very fit and very fast, and we just may never see this again. So if you can, tune in to watch the Berlin Marathon on Saturday. I was watching a Total Running Productions video on YouTube, 
about the longest streak of any sort of runner. And I think this, he included sprinters as well or throwers. Um, Total Running Productions is a, a channel on YouTube, which is fantastic. He makes these good, quick videos. They fills you in on the running world. If you follow anything, I'd go to Total Running Productions and just follow it and watch those videos, and you'll be somewhat kept up to date on the running and track and field world. And they have great initials. Hey, they do, don't they? TRP, um, baby. Yeah, smart, smart guy. Anyways, does a great job. So go give them a follow because then you'll actually be in the know on the major happenings, I feel like. Anyways, he did a video on like the greatest of all time, and he caught, he does a lot of those videos. But anyways, Eliud Kipchoge's span of dominance, because he's, what, 37, 8? Uh, 37, I thought. I have so, to double check now. Anyway, starts when the when the guy was like 17, and his major world, first world championship was at like the age of 19 or 20. Nobody in history has ever gone as long as he has with a world championship or an Olympic championship. The dude is on like... 19 or 20 years of world championship non-junior race world championships or titles it's absolutely incredible we're living and witnessing probably the greatest span in history of any endurance athlete and he started in spans from like the 5k all the way up now to the marathon it's absolutely incredible um and i didn't realize how long his run was and Mm -hmm. then the video is projecting to the next olympics which i believe he's committed to already yeah um anyways point being wow just confirming what you're saying watch the guy yeah, and he's he's the rare, really, really fast runner who went to the marathon. Most mm-hmm. of the public consciousness around him right now is as the marathoner. And I think oftentimes people forgot that he outkicked Mo Farah indoor at like a 3K or a 5K oh, or something. By like hundreds of worlds. a second. Yeah, this off. is a guy who was a 12.50, oh, I'm going to blank, 12.55, 5K runner. He's run 330 or 331 or something in a 1500 meters, which is like a a sub 350 mile. So just like we talked about in Race Brain a while ago that you're not going to be great at an ultra because you've run a 15 minute 5K, but you can't be great at like Western States without running a 15 minute 5K. This is a guy who's great at the marathon who also can run sub 350 in a mile. So he's just a rare combination of the physical and the mental, and we're not guaranteed to see something like him ever again because we never did before him. Amazing. There are really only two runners I know of in my adult life or my youth of being aware of running that have his range, and that's Kenanisa Bekele and Haile Gebrselassi, and neither of them had the ability to run the marathon like he did, and his his consistency and health. Bekele did, didn't he? Well, he had his moments. He did. His PRs, his PR is only two seconds or three seconds slower. Yeah. But he goes years in between finishing a race or setting a PR, whereas, whereas, uh, Elio just does it every single time. Practically there, there, you could be argued that Ken would have done it if he ever strung together a block of training, but that's one of the, tenants of being a goat is that you string together those blocks so we've just never seen anyone who put together the career he did and he might be gone soon saturday what time well berlin's gonna be ahead so it's gonna be like the middle of the night here yeah yeah so maybe uh catch it on replay and don't look for spoilers or whatever but Mm -hmm. know what the common thread all those guys had and then let's move on is i know i uh gabriel anyways um and eliud 
are like some of the most likable, smiley, happy, give back, down to earth. Like running's a, a humanizing and uh, humbling sport to start with. And I know those two, just all the media on them, like are two of the purest humans out there. Like if you want to yeah. root for anybody, you want to root for Eliud. Um, I don't know much about Bekele. Uh, I'm assuming he falls into line there, but both like Gabriel Selassie and Elliot are like uh, top tier human beings on top of it. So it like makes it easy to root for yeah. him. That's what I'm getting at. They show that if you want to win a world championship or, or hit your ceiling, you can live on the razor's edge of personality. You can exist off of anger or fear or hate or emotion. But mm. if you want to do it your whole life, the people that just love the process and love humans, those are the people that, mm -hmm. like uh, the Meb, Meb fits that bill too, where he mm. was running sub 210 into his 40s. The people that love the community and just this lifestyle are the ones that are doing it at a high level for the longest. You can't just exist off of emotion for 20 years of racing, unless that emotion's love. You have to truly love it in your bones. Yep. Your soul. All right. Well, let's flip the script then. So let's talk about, um, I feel like we could just ramble and bullshit about stuff like this for an entire hour. And maybe we will do some of these on training Tuesdays, but let's flip the script and go to, uh, specifically what we have coming up this weekend, which is OCR worlds. Um, this can be relevant to non OCR, uh, race events, but we got a big one on the horizon that spans three days or maybe mm -hmm. even four days. I don't know if they do some prelims or 100-meter uh, runs on Thursday. But nonetheless, we've done an episode on this in the past. This is your idea, and I think it's a great idea, about <clears throat> we back-to-back uh, -back race weekends, how to prepare from one race to the next to the next, how to get your body ready. But what we haven't talked about in depth on that episode, and we did that episode maybe a year ago, how to prep for back-to-back -back mm -hmm. race weekends, or not back-to-back -back days of racing, is we didn't actually talk about strategy within the races as well. Like, does that come into yeah. play? Um, because you know you're racing multiple days as well. And so just reminding people of back-to-back -back race days and then maybe the strategy that should go within that. Um, chatting that out since it's topical. Yeah. And unfortunately, the Tahoe 24-hour Ultra Championship doesn't get to be included in this, which right. is an absolute shame. And also, I'm going to kind of back Spartan here. They made the right decision. They made the right call. It's bad out there. We know some people in the wildfire business. There are several people in this sport who are doing that, Rylan and a few others. Uh, I have a cousin who does it. I have a kid I grew up next to who is out in Montana fighting wildfires for a living. Uh, everyone I've talked to says... You don't make a business decision here. You make a humanity decision. You do not want to be in the vicinity for these kind of things. So I'm just, I don't want to get political with the sport and business here, but this isn't Spartan being Spartan. This is just the correct call. And it sucks. I had athletes out there getting ready for this, and it sucks that they're not a part of this conversation we're about to have today. Oh, that's so true. And, and then of all things, for a race that requires 24 hours of effort, there's a certain level of prep that goes in well beyond what a lot of you can comprehend if you're training for your OCRs of the season or your 5Ks, like the amount of money spent on gear, yes. the amount of emotional hours that I know it goes into all of the races that we do, but there's another heightened level of this. And so to have that pulled out uh, from under you is a, is a tough deal. And I have an athlete, <clears throat> Nicole, who's a firefighter, 
uh, out in the Calgary region. And last week, was it? She was out fighting something. Um, and anyways, it affected just like the smoke from, you know, that was like noteworthy for the next day or two, a couple of days about how it affected her running and performance. And then you have wildfire smoke, which is like another level. And then breathing hard into that for 24 hours would be actually like seriously harmful for, to your health. And so seconding what you said, what do you say to those people? We had a quick, let's just hit it real quick. We had a quick conversation before recording. Um, I have suggested, I have three athletes who are going to do the Tahoe ultra. And then I have a handful who are going to race the beast. Um, I've suggested to my ultra athletes to go on Everest next weekend instead, which is doing the amount of vertical gain it would take to climb Mount Everest, which is like 29,000 and some odd feet projecting that even for the craziest non-humans to be 15 hours, it, it could be up to 24, depending on who you are further. Um, and that's just going up and down a mountain or incline until you reach 29,000. I don't know what Everest is at these days, 29,030 some feet probably. Anyways, that was my suggestion. If any of you are out there looking for something to do with your fitness and you're like, what do I do next? Of course, create your own your own event, but I think Everesting is a great comparable experience and something that only the most badass do, and it's something you will never, never forget, and your training will not go to waste. So there's my plug for what I think people should pivot to if they don't have an idea. That's a trajectory-changing endeavor. You can't, mm -hmm. you can't just coat. It doesn't matter how easy you do it. You can't get through on motivation alone. Nope. Like you will get to a point where you just don't want to do it. And you may hit that point like 10 or 15 times. You come <laughs> out the other side, a different person. Yeah. And, and my advice to my athletes, I, I hate saying my athletes, the athletes I work with and to just people that I'm not working with, but who have messaged <laughs> the running public since then is you have to use your fitness. Use it. You have to use it. And you, you can use it in two ways. You either find a comparable test of fitness so that you can justify to yourself the block of training you just did. And so you can see what would have happened. Coming off of, I feel like the ultra is the hardest race to know if you're ready for. Because you just can't go that distance at that intensity in training. Mm -hmm. Once you get probably to the marathon and above, you can't know. Even if you know, you don't really know. So going out and doing a different ultra or an Everest or something where it's going to tax you the same way you find out what would have happened and you can use that as a as a litmus test for what your training was like and what to do next time or you go out and do something you've done in the past to find out what did all this extra grit and endurance do for my actual racing so example les cowan an athlete that i work with decided he's going to go out and do new jersey instead he's like should i do the ultra or should i do the beast and then just do the whole trifecta weekend and eventually decided upon, he's just going to do the beast and find out what did all this extra volume and hill work do for my like three hour red line gain game. And I'm all for that. Love it. And I actually just had this conversation with, uh, via text with my brother-in-law, Neil, he prepped all year for this, uh, this 40 mile mountain bike race and they got thunderstorms 10 miles in and it just turned the course to soup and he just stuck with his buddy and they just finished like an hour slower than what he wanted to do. It's like, you just got to go find another race. You got to know. You just got to get out there, find a similar, for him, find a similar thing and just go rip it up. You got to use your fitness. The most important thing you said there is you need to know what your training and your lead up did for you. And, yeah. and 
And what a waste for you to just abandon it, feel sorry for yourself, and then not do anything. And yeah, you're allowed to feel sorry for yourself, but then snap out of it and then make a make a business decision to to test what all that training came to. Mm-hmm. It's the most important part because you're going to learn so much about, okay, this is what I – I mean, the learning curves in an ultra that's 24 hours are exponential, but you're exactly right. Don't put it to waste because it's going to still set you up better for your next one. And yeah. so um, understanding what your body is capable of, don't don't let that slip just because your race was canceled. We oftentimes make the the comparison that training is like saving up money. You've got all this currency you've saved up. But where that breaks down is that if you were saving up to buy a car and then your other car came back around and you found a small little fix, you can get another 10 years out of it. You don't need to just turn and spend 30 grand just because you have it. You'd be like, well, I've got 30 grand. Let's save it. And now you're ahead in life. That's where it breaks down. Racing is the opposite. You've built up training currency. You need to go spend it. Yep. You've got to spend it. That's the only way you can build it back up. Otherwise, it just sits there and then it's it devalues very quickly. Could not agree more. And this is that moment where some people get training breakthroughs. This is where I got, and I haven't even been able to use it because of injuries, but training for an ultra gave me a breakthrough on how to train for shorter races because I went and did a short race training for an ultra and realized I respond to volume in hills. Right. I wouldn't have known that if I didn't train for that. So suddenly I realized if I was to train for a three-hour race, I have to train for it like a six-hour race. And you just wouldn't know, so you've got to go find out. Could not agree more, brother. Well, we got that out of the way. We wanted to wedge that in sometime <laughs> in this episode. I, I think I think the sleep deprivation, I think um, more is just affecting our train of thought. That's it. I'm realizing we're a little more sporadic today. That's okay. <laughs> So, so moving on then to um, multi-day events, so yes. common in our sport, and not a lot of. I don't think there's a lot of like education out there on how to actually approach this. Like I know we've done an episode, but I'm trying to think of like the podcasts I listen to and other stuff. You don't see it covered that often, but in our niche sport of OCR, happens every weekend somewhere around the country. Mm-hmm. Um, so where do you want to start with this conversation then? Um, both how to approach each race itself, sort of managing your effort, if that's even a thing or you should, and yeah. then and then what to do to get yourself ready for all of the days of, of hard work ahead. Well, I, I want to start with my golden rule of multi-day or multi-stage racing. Okay. And wherever that sends us in this fog that we have on our minds, it sends <laughs> us. Perfect. And that is, you must, 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 race with your mind as if you are only racing your first race and you must race with your body as if you are racing every race for the weekend what i mean by that is you must approach mentally the race as if this is the only race you cannot come in with a rev limiter you can't come in shying away you have to say this is the only race that ever matters for the rest of my life mentally and that's how you approach but the way you treat your hands your toes your feet your body your hydration during the race you prepare as if you're already preparing for the last stage of the weekend stole the words out of my mouth but put them a little better than i probably would have this morning bracken it's gonna take a village today kirk <laughs> i agree with that fully um the whole managing your effort thing mm-hmm. kind of goes out the window in this case because you don't want to hold back sacrifice placing positioning not do your training 
the service it deserves by going out on racing, going out on course and only racing at 80%. That serves nobody. Um, and the nice thing about this weekend coming up, if there's any sequence of events in which plays into the athlete's hands, it's racing a shorter, sharper, hate-your-life race first and then going and getting to grind it out second. What happens in that case is that the sharpness of race, uh, the shorter race on day one is so sharp and so intense right out of the gates that it one gives you perspective day two, like you're going to sit somewhat comfortably for the beginning of the race on day two, uh, this upcoming weekend, which is mentally like very approachable. You're going to get out there and be like, wow, I actually feel good because you're in a pace in which isn't turning you inside out from the gun. The second thing is that the more, the more, uh, duration, the more damaging, and so even if you're turning yourself inside out, approaching max heart rate, VO2 max work on day one in a 3K, um, day two, you're not nearly as damaged from the number of steps, reps, pounding, all of that, which allows you to perform again well on, on the second day. If it was reversed and you were doing the 15K first and the 3K second, would I tell you to manage your efforts? No, because you still got to go out and put it all out there. But Day two would feel a lot different if they were flip-flopped. And so mm -hmm. the way this is set up sets you up well. What I'm getting at is to go all out on day one and still be able to squeeze every ounce of your fitness out again on day two because of the order of events. You follow me there, Bracken? You agree? 100%. I look at this weekend, and I think this is a high school or college track meet. You start out with your 4 by 800 relay, the 30, 200-meter relay, or you mm -hmm. run the mile or something like that. Later on in the meet, you're running the two mile and you're going to close down with the four by 400 meter relay. That first one stings. It's nasty. You get done and think, oh, I can't run the mile or the two mile later. Mm -hmm. And you get some food in you. You get off your feet. You get back. You're a little tired warming up. Then you get rolling into the race and realize it was nasty, but it has not depleted like my ability to run. Yep. Then, no matter how tired you get during the mile, the two mile, the 5K, whatever, you can close out with a 4x4, four four, and that's the team race on Sunday. Like, once your juices get pumping and there's teammates around you, it's fine. And it's not that long of a race, and you can just blow it out, and it's there's something freeing about being on a relay. You don't have to worry about your pain. You just get as fast as you can through the course because your teammates depend on you. So it really reminds me of a track meet. Mm -hmm. And we have... Maybe not as much experience in multi-day racing or in stage racing as some other people out there, but we have as much experience as anyone besides a pro runner in running more than one track race in a day. Oh, yeah. And it always comes together better than you think it would. I spent 20 to 40 minutes one day, probably closer to 40 over, and I talked about this uh, after the mile indoor puking over the, the garbage can. It just turned me inside out. It was probably the one or two races of my life I've actually thrown up after. And then came out and ran a fantastic 800-meter dash about an hour mm -hmm. after that. In that moment, I never would have imagined I could have even warmed up for the race. But your body comes back around. So you. But had I approached that mile, like I've got an 800 later, I would have sucked in the mile. And then I would have been demoralized for the 800. It's true. Yeah, that reminds me of uh, and in college, you know, rounds of... Rounds of races at like the conference track meet or nationals where it's multi-day. Like we got our, we got our taste of that. Um, so I think we have plenty of experience and I've run in plenty of back-to-back -back race weekends on the OCR circuit. I'm sure, gosh, in your day, especially when you first joined the sport, you just traveled around the country and raced back-to-back -back everywhere you went nonstop. So. Especially when you got appearance fees. <laughs> right. 
Oh, those were the days, weren't they? Appearance fees. That's kind of the way you have to approach it, is if there's an appearance fee for just showing up to the second or third race. Mm-hmm. Because that's what got me out of bed when I was smashed from a 10K or a 15 or a 20K race on day one. It's like, well, I get, I might get a thousand bucks just to show up to the start line. And as I'm warming up, I'm like, I'm just going to dog it today. I feel so terrible. And then you start seeing other people and you get a stride or two in and then the gun goes off and you're like, I'm just going to be easy. And then a half mile in, you're like, F this, I'm racing. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you have to just get to the start line and then your fitness and your competitive streak take over. And I wouldn't have run a single one of those races had I not had an appearance fee the next day. But I was almost never disappointed because your body comes around. Lifestyles of the rich and famous, I guess, Bracken. As long as you're willing to compromise on both those fronts. Do you need Do you need uh, my shoulder to cry on? Or are you okay over there? No, it was a great time of life. It really was, wasn't it? Traveling and racing was great. But what it showed me is I'm a slow recoverer. I get beat up after races. And whenever possible, I skip day two. But mm-hmm. that carrot of the appearance fee got me to the line. And I always race better than I thought I would. Mm. So, yeah, you approach it as if the first race is the only one that matters. And you just race it without a care in the world, except for the physical preparation and taking care of your body. Like if I had two different shoes to choose between on day one of racing and one I felt slightly faster in and the other one I just got way less beat up in, in a multi-stage race, you just start in the shoe that beats you up less. If I'm Mm -hmm. thinking, should I wear gloves for this obstacle race or not? I think my hands can get through, but... It just taxes me a little less with gloves. You wear gloves. On a multi-stage, you protect your hands. You protect your toes. 3K, I don't have to worry about blisters. I'm still putting trail toes on there or taping up my pinky toes or whatever I have to do that you can't have your body go wrong in a preventable way. So you treat your body like it's racing at least every single race, if not more. Yeah, you don't want to be like working through ripped open blisters on your hands in a 15K race. You don't want to be totally blown out with blood blisters or something on your feet if you know like uh, those races hit you funny in the shoes you wear exactly like all the preventative measures so when you show up day two your all systems are a go that's the most important whether you're tired or not from the effort that's fine but you don't want to show up uh compromised and just to touch back on that you know we go all out on day one with our effort level but we make cerebral decisions with how our body um I guess stays healthy, we can call it. Um, I would argue that the harder you go on day one in the 3K, in the shorter event, the better you will feel on day two. If you go out and sandbag on day one because either the 15K is your priority or I'm not as good at short distances, so I'm going to hold back and get to know the obstacles, which there's validity to that. I'm just going to go run through the course so I get familiar with some of these so that on day two I'm better. I understand that, and you can totally do that. There's nothing wrong to put all your eggs in one basket, let's say the 15K, which I'm sure a number of you are. But if you're doing both, I would argue that making yourself hurt as much as possible on day one translates to being able to access that again at even another level, day two in a longer race. Anytime that I've run a race on day one and totally went to the well to the point where I was turned inside out, I've trusted my fitness, I've trusted my training, I've trusted my body's resiliency to come back. And then day two, I miraculously feel like better than day one. My body's pathways are completely open now because it just, it's like, you can't hurt me. 
look how bad you hurt me yesterday. Like you can't possibly hurt me any worse today. And there's this mental capacity to going out there and suffering, opening up that possibility to your mind and then being able to sink your teeth into that the next day even more. And even mm-hmm. day one might not even go great. You may be like, oh my God, that's I just hung on for dear life. It hurt so bad. I would bet my paycheck that the next day in the 15K, your body almost like does a 180 and it can access what it needs to access because you just familiarized yourself with it. And so I don't even think necessarily sandbagging day one is a way to run your best day two. I actually think going out there and hammering day one is the way to run your best day two as well. I'm sure people can poke holes in that argument, but that is my experience in OCR racing. Yeah, it really just is because the race isn't long enough to be worthy of sandbagging. If it were a marathon back-to-back days, yeah, I don't think you can PR on day one and PR on day two. You've got to run your best cumulative time. But that's not the way this is. It's so short that you're, like you said it earlier, you're not going to take the physical pounding. It's just Mm -hmm. going to be mentally miserable. And then that makes the 15K feel easier. A 15K hurts, but it doesn't hurt as intensely and sharply as a 3K. And the other Mm -hmm. thing is that the decision was made for you. It's a time trial. 3K time trial is based on time, not finish position, because it goes off in waves. So you don't even have the option of slowing up, even if you thought, oh, you know, there's no one near me. I can dog it and save some energy for tomorrow. All that's going to do is piss you off later and depress you when you realize someone from a later wave beat me and I was three seconds away from a podium or from making top 10 or top 20 or top 50% of my age group, whatever the goal was. The only way to be successful is to go all the way through the line anyway. So you approach it as if that's the only race. Yep. And I will make an argument as well. Um, and I agree with you on that is <clears throat> going out and doing course recon the day before, uh, as I touched on is, is smart. Let's say if you don't think your body can handle the pounding or you haven't hit the mileage in your training and you think you need to pick one race, I understand that decision and totally go out and nail it. But going through and doing course recon at a leisurely effort and then having to go do it at a race type effort approaching the obstacles might as well be on different planets. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you won't even understand what your body's going to feel like or give you the next day because if you're going and playing the, the first day, which again is okay, I understand you can justify that decision. And I'm sure some of you listening will do that. Does not lead you into approaching it well, completely blown out and fatigued and tired, which can be two entirely different things. I remember the first uh, North American OCR champs down in Texas, the inaugural event I actually had gone to. And I raced so hard that first day and I over revved early and I blew up epically. I took eighth place and it was one of the most miserable experiences of my life. Those obstacles were so hard because I was so blown out on a metabolic standpoint that like everything was, I was like rendered almost useless. I had to stop and pause and catch my breath. I felt clunky and inefficient and I still learned how to approach these obstacles while tired, turn the script to day two. And people don't think about this fact either on day two, the obstacle density is much less because you're running further. So you actually have more time to recover your upper body and your Mm -hmm. grip strength between obstacles. So it actually becomes, even though there's more obstacles on day two, it actually becomes less grip intensive. People don't think about that because there's more time in between sessions. So then day two, I approach slightly lower heart rate because it's a longer race. And the obstacles went from being a 10 out of 10 difficulty to like a four out of 10. And I learned how to do them tired the day before. And so everything just flowed so much better. And it would not have done that if I wasn't inside out miserable day one. That wasn't Mm -hmm. by design. This was me being ignorant and inexperienced. I learned this luckily. And then day two went so much smoother 
because the heart rate was five beats a minute lower. I had approached everything uh, under a more controlled manner and it just, I couldn't have scripted it better. And there I, I ran in third place and almost landed on the podium until my body gave out a mile from the finish and I got passed by Killian and Woods. But I'll never forget that. And I don't think that would have happened if I didn't sell my soul on day one. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just pushing people into that category. If you're on the fence or I don't know how to approach it, I would err on the side of selling, selling out on course because you're going to learn best for the next day that way. Yeah. I think an important thing for people to remember is that this is not a typical event. That sounds like, yeah, well, duh, obviously. But what is it more like? This is more like a tournament. This is more like the playoffs. We've all seen this every year. I don't care what sport you follow. As soon as the playoffs happen, the regular season is done, teams or individuals change who they were. You could have been dominant all year long and you don't have good playoffs. Or you can be the Cinderella story in March Madness or in the in Major League Baseball or football. Or it doesn't matter what it is. Someone gets hot and they stay hot. And someone starts yeah. out slow and they just never get their feet underneath themselves. Momentum builds more momentum. And just like that that underdog uh, like Davidson or someone like that goes on a run in the tournament where you start hitting shots and the next game you come out knowing you can hit shots. And you just come out knowing, I shoot well in this gym. I play great in this tournament and that's now your new reality. Even if it's not true, it is now. And it's the same way with racing. If you're in the middle of your first race and you think, uh, I'm just going to shut it down and do well tomorrow, you're rewiring your pathways mentally. You're now telling your body, this is what we do at this point. And it doesn't matter if you think, I'll just do better tomorrow. There's nothing guaranteed. The only race that's guaranteed is that race in the moment. You might roll your ankle tomorrow. It might rain tomorrow. Some monster might show up tomorrow that didn't race. All you can have is this little slice of life right now. But it guarantees that the next day follows suit if you approach it correctly. You can get hot in running just like you can get hot in basketball. Mm-hmm. And we see this all the time. This happens. And you can't approach it as if I have to save. You approach it as in, I'm setting the tone for tomorrow, today. Well, you know what? If you listening or anything like me and Bracken, I'm speaking on your behalf because I feel like I know you well enough too in this regard. Here's what happens if it's me. One, I go out and I nail the 3K. All that does is build momentum like that guy out on court, nailing his shots. He knows he can do it, and he goes into the next day or the next game with that same confidence, right? It just builds. Um, Done. No problem. Now, if I have a bad 3K and I epically blow up, I mess up on an obstacle, I fail something, I did DNF maybe. Um, If you're anything like me, what does that do? That just puts kerosene on the fire for me. And it leads me to go out and want to fix what I screwed up the day before. And I go out with a new sense of vigor and purpose, maybe a little scared, and that's okay. But with this like r- new sense of motivation to go prove to myself and maybe others, that's not who I am. And you go in with a whole spin on day two that way. So either way, going out, uh, either being successful or epically going down in flames, still bleeds positively into your next day, in mm-hmm. my opinion. And once you can wrap your head around that, I don't know why we're convincing you so hard to go race hard on Friday. I just think it's the right move for anybody waffling over that decision. And so it's a win-win in my eyes to yeah. go race 
all out, day one, no tomorrow, with the exception of making sure you're healthy by the time you hit the finish line. Well, we're driving this home because we've had so many conversations or messages with people saying, you know, my point of emphasis isn't the three key. I'm going to use it as more of a warm up for day two. Yep. That's such a common thread. I'm going to use it as like a warm up in course scouting. But what people forget or maybe don't forget, but turn a blind eye to is that running is difficult and it's really? painful. Huh. And if you don't have your pre your pre workout and you don't do your warm up and you don't put on your your race shoes, that workout sucks. But when you have your pre workout and you do your full warm up and you put on your fast shoes, you're prepared to hurt in the workout just as much as you're prepared to execute the workout. That's half of why we do big warm ups before a hard workout. Could you get away with less of a warm up sometimes? Yeah. But it's the process of like putting your armor on before battle. That's what your warm up really is on a on an interval day. Yeah, if you just went through range of motion and did a stride or two, you could physically perform. But mentally, you need to put your helmet on to feel ready for battle. And so when you get out there on a course and say, I'm just gonna run it at eighty percent today, eighty percent hurts. But if you expect it to feel like 50% and it feels like 80, 80 now feels like 95. But if you go out there to hurt at 100% and it hurts at 100, it's expected and you tolerate it. And there is no worse feeling in the world than thinking today is going to be easy. Tomorrow I go hard and then today hurts and it just makes you second guess everything. Mm -hmm. So you either walk the course or jog it while chatting with friends as this is a shakeout run and I'm going to look at the obstacles or you go race that thing intending to race it. But that yep. in-between zone is really now some people can do it. But that in-between zone is really dangerous because what you're doing is physically demanding at any effort. And if you don't have your helmet on, if you don't have your armor on, it hits you differently. It's like going out and running 10K tempo at marathon pace the week of a marathon. It's not a good idea because what happens is you go out and you run that. You're like, oh, it's only six miles yes. versus 26. So this is going to be easy because it's way, it's 20 miles short of my marathon. So this is no problem. And then you go out there and you're three miles in. You're like, this hurts. I can't hold this for a whole marathon. And you go in thinking it's going to be easy. And then you realize, well, this is a lot of work. And then it actually like negatively almost impacts your psyche more than anything, talking you out of working hard the next day, which you don't yes. want to do. And that's a classic mistake sometimes people do. I'm just going to go practice marathon pace for a shorter distance the week of my marathon or close. And then you scare yourself. Like, Christ, this, I can't do this. This hurts. It's like the OCR's version of doing that, if that makes any sense. This will sound strange at first. Have you ever been punched in the face? Yes. Have you ever been in an actual fight? No. Okay. I, I got knocked right out once. Did you Straight really? up. Oh, this was back in like 15 years ago, and some guy button hooked me out of left field, sniped me. We were out drinking, mm. and I landed up on the ground, and I don't remember <laughs> anything. Okay. Have you been punched in the face where you weren't knocked out? Yes. Okay. Once. What does it feel like? Why are you asking? Well, because I'm asking because I've been hit in the face before or we get caught during a sport and it just like, or someone accidentally elbows you at practice. If you get punched in the face when you're not expecting it, it lights you up. Oh, big time. Changes your world instantly. If you've ever been in an actual fight, you don't really feel it the same way. Like, there's a difference in 
I just got hit in the face to I'm about to go get hit in the face. Right. It work, It changes things. Like I one time I had a, an official boxing match and I probably got hit 35 times and maybe three or four of them were really, really clean. And I did not feel a single thing. Like you felt the impact. You, you, you were aware of it happening, but there wasn't much to it. Mm-hmm. When you are prepared to get hit in the face, your body turns off those little receptors there. Yep. Like I had a bloody nose. I had, I had blood in my lips. Like if you get hit in the nose in real life, that clouds your eyes up with tears and it hurts and you have like a fog for a few seconds. I didn't know I was even hit in the nose. I just knew I was hit somewhere in the face. That's how racing is. If you're not prepared to be punched in the face, it rocks your world. But if you go in expecting to and you put your mouth guard in and you've got your chin tucked, you can get hit really hard in the face and you don't feel real pain. Mm -hmm. And that's what this is. So we're spending a lot of time drilling this, but going in and saying, I'm just going to go easy today as my warm up for tomorrow. Some people get away with it, but more often than not, it leaves you in shambles mentally thinking, how could I even go 100% tomorrow if 60 or 80% today rocked my world? Could not agree more. Punching in the face analogy is a good one. If I knew I was going to get punched in the face and there was some build, I mean, I get it. I get yeah. what you're saying. I, let's um, let's move on to the 15K. Let's pretend, let's just for the sake of, I'm looking at the clock. Mm-hmm. So we got that point across, I think, correct? And then let's so. quickly touch on the on the next day and then either direct people back to our back-to-back race days episode or we can give a few quick pointers. But um, 15K, now you're beat up from the day before. You wake up, you're a little stiff and achy. No matter how perfect your recovery is after your 3K race, you're going to wake up being like, oh boy, what's going to happen today? Most likely. Yes. Uh, may even have sore forearms from the day before. There might be some interesting things like my shoulder kind of hurts, maybe from ape swinging a little much. You're going to have all these kinks going on potentially, or you're going to feel great, mm-hmm. hopefully. But so you get there. Here's the keys. First thing, it starts with your warm up. Don't go there being like, God, I worked so hard yesterday. I should like save myself today. Like, I don't want to run too much before my 15, you know, the 15K. Wrong. We got to work. We got to work the same or more to get that body back up and ready and all systems are going loose. So don't change your warm-up. Don't shortcut your warm-up. We're going out there. We're doing a lot of range of motion, plyometric, yes. toe touch, dynamic stuff. We're getting all those things open. And you're probably going to feel sluggish. And you're probably going to feel one step slow with all your movements. Totally fine. It's not going to indicate how you're going to feel out on the race course. But just want to start that next morning with the warm-up. Get that big sweat going. Even get a few hard surges in there as uh, we, we've alluded to in, in past episodes. And just get that body primed. Don't save anything. Go and get some work done in your warm-up so you are ready and those kinks are worked out by the time the gun goes off. Yes. Yeah, if we're approaching this as in warming up is putting on your armor before battle, you have to put your armor on day two. Yep. But you have to also understand that you were in battle yesterday. You are going to take a lot longer to get your armor on waking up on day two than you did on day one when you were fired up and antsy and adrenaline filled. On day two, everything hurts and you're going to need some help getting your, getting some of your armor <laughs> on. You need to plan for that. So even if I were to run maybe a little less on day two, which I'm not advocating, but even if I were to, I'm scheduling an extra 20 minutes for my warm up because it's going to take me longer. It's going to yep. take me longer to get to the point where I even want to go jog. 
I'm going to have to spend more time on my range of motion and my mobility. So your full armor has to get put on, but you're going to be moving slower. And you're going to discover little pieces along the way that need to get reinforced a little bit. So you actually plan more time on day two than you plan mm-hmm. on day one. I love that analogy. That one hit, hit perfectly for me. Good. The yep. second thing is that everything is a liar on day two. Your mind is a liar. Your body is a liar. Your warm-up is a liar, and the people around you are liars. That's the way you have to approach day two. So true. When you wake up and your mind says, oh, get 15 more minutes of sleep, it's lying to you. You get out of bed and you get moving. When your body, you take your first steps out of bed and your body says, listen, we cannot run today. It's lying to you. When you start warming up and your warm-up says, you can't run today. Look how heavy you are. Your warm-up's a liar. It's getting all the sluggishness out of the way. It's not setting the tone for the day. And when there's people around you jumping around and looking fresh and chipper, they're lying. They're covering up for how terrible they feel. And then when there's people that are sitting there going, why are we even racing today? You know, they want to commiserate with you. They want to get other Mm -hmm. people into that that frame of mind. Like, what are we even doing? You want to just hang out here? They're lying too. You have to distrust everyone and everything except the starter's pistol. That's the only thing that tells any truth on that day. Preach. I'd say no matter if it's your day two race or your day one race or your day 30 race, everything before the gun going off is a liar. No matter everything. what. Everything is lying to you. Whether you feel great, guess what? That's probably lying to you. You feel terrible, mm-hmm. probably lying to you. You're really motivated to get out there and crush, might be lying to yourself. Very demotivated, might be a lie as well. You just don't know until you're in battle what's going to happen. So we get into battle. That gun goes off. Now, I want to remind you, 3K, very best, is going to be one in around 20 minutes, probably. 3K is racing more like double the distance, a 6K, for example, for most of these guys and girls. It's going to race longer than you think. Very best, the elite men are going to win it in 20 minutes. Let's just talk roughly. Women, 25. Then you can project from there where you're going to be based on how good you are compared to the winners. 15K, nine plus miles. What is it? Nine, three, or just say nine and a half miles with potentially like 3000 feet of elevation gain. So we're probably, I mean, I'm very much speculating because we haven't seen the nuances of the course, but what are we talking? Hour and a half for the winner, probably more. 75 to 90 75, minutes, yeah. plus or minus. Depending. Yeah. Um. So start gauging there as well, but plan on it. Like what going uphill does for you and downhill does for you is, and a lot of these things you're going to go in with no momentum because you're going uphill with legs that are burning and a heart rate that's skyrocketed. So anticipate not, not feeling ready to hop right on the obstacles, but you need to hop right on the obstacles. We pounded this home in past episodes, but um, sitting there, shaking the hands out, thinking about it for 30 seconds does you no good especially if you've trained hard enough up to this point and smart enough. If you're spending the money and time to travel there, my guess is you have. And even if you're doubting your training, you're probably wrong in that. That's a liar as well. You get up there, you're breathing hard. There's no, I need to catch my breath. I need to shake out my hands. You don't. I'm going to firmly stand on that. You don't. And if you're really going for placement, you can gain, and I mean this, minutes on course by getting right into and right out of things and trusting that you will get through 
whatever task is at hand. And yes. so that's key number one. This goes for both races. Get up there, get on, move forward. You have to fabricate momentum and motivation on day two. The first climb is going to suck. We know that. However, the saving grace is that in my time covering the sport and being a part of the sport, I cannot think of a time where somebody got to the top of the first climb in the 3K or the 15K ahead of the field and won. I can't think of it. Yeah, I'm having a hard time too. The person at the, unless they're like in first of a pack, like Lindsay maybe has been in first at the top by a stride. But winning the first hill has never, ever won a 3K or 15K championship. If we look back to last year, didn't happen. If we look back to the uh, to the years that I competed in it personally, didn't happen. If we look back to any years that I've watched on the treadmill or or commentated, I can't think of a time where someone had a lead at the top of the first climb and won the race. So... Who cares if you feel crappy? It doesn't matter. It's just the preamble to the race. What happens, though, is you crest the top of the hill, and it's time to start fabricating momentum. You're going to get in and out of the first obstacle faster than anyone else. You're going to commit to the first downhill. I don't care if your legs feel crappy. They are going to do what you tell them to do downhill. Fitness, being beat up, doesn't matter on a descent. So go fabricate some momentum. When you get to the bottom, you don't stand and shake out before Valkyrie or before the first big obstacle. You just get in and out. Your body's lying to you. So you just make it toe the line and get in and out. And every time you move past people doing that, it demoralizes them and you just suck some energy off of them. And suddenly you start the second climb and your legs are coming alive, but you've passed 15 people by being in and out of things. And now you've set your train down the tracks. You've fabricated momentum and now you can get to work. Do you think there's a place to talk on the opposite side of the coin? There's a place to be like, no, you need to be cautious. You need to take your time. You need to calculate. You need to rest and pause and think about the obstacle. You need to analyze every little thing. Some people will be seeing a lot of these things for the first time. Are we just sending people off to their deaths? Or or do you think, do you think there is a place for the, and, and my, you know what? I'm not a fast runner, but I know that there's going to be a 40% fail rate and so I am just going to be the slow and steady approach, and I'm going to I'm going to place by default, as we call it mm-hmm. almost. Um, or are we just we're not even going to open that page of the book today? I think your prep happens before the race starts. I am doing my warm up in and around the most difficult obstacles. The great news is that unless you're the first wave, you're watching people go through all weekend, and you send it in the three k. Mm-hmm. You take all of that data of watching people during your warm up, doing it yourself, and you go to the film room after the 3K. You lay down in your hotel room, kick your legs up, and you go back over the course map and you watch the live stream and you replay the live stream and you start going through your sequence of events for every obstacle. All right, I'm leading left hand on this this time. You're able to skip this, but you've got to be really cautious. Here I'm going 90, here I'm ape swinging. You just break it down like you would any other sport on film. And for that 15K, you come in with your, here's my best case scenario strategy. And as I run up, if I'm identifying that one thing that sends me to my worst case scenario, I switch to that strategy. 
But I think your slowly analyze everything happens outside the lines. Once you're in between the lines, you're just reacting to the situation, but you're not standing still ever. That's my personal take on it. Yeah, I believe the day before the race, the last time I did OCR NORAMs, the only time actually, um, I remember me and Ryan Woods went and just sort of walked the course. We looked at everything from next to the tape. Some people were on them, some weren't. It was the day before, but it was all set up. There's nothing against course recon. Making your shakeout that Thursday when you arrive, going and hiking the hill and looking at the things you know that that you have questions on. A lot of the stuff is down in the festival area, so most mm-hmm. of the hard obstacles are going to be in front of viewers, which means you don't have to hike to the top of the mountain to see the most difficult ones. Most of those are in viewership, and so just doing your recon there, um, I could not agree more uh, in that regard. As far as gauging effort, we talked about seventy-five minutes to ninety. For the for the non cyborgs listening, you're well over two hours. Yeah, you're out there for a long time. Um, all your major principles of fueling, hydrating, managing your effort on the first climb. You know, holding back just a t- notch or two on that first climb. Um, there is no worse feeling, folks, and you guys all know this because you've probably done it like I have, than being blown up and have to obstacle. Being blown up and then having to put your arms over your head, and it's going to happen. In fact, whoever wins the race might have that exact feeling, but. Just knowing, like, if we can stave that off for the obstacle dense sections um, by staying in control as long as you can and then breathing through all of the obstacles, something my rookie self, I'd get up on like the rig or the or monkey bars or Skull Valley and I'd go, huh! and I'd freaking hold my breath for the whole 30 seconds it took to get through there and then come off gasping. Mm-hmm. If you can remember to breathe while you are up there, you are going to come off light years ahead of half the field because most everybody naturally breathe or holds their breath on accident due to the strain. So those little keys go a long ways. If you have that like sort of race acumen while you're in the moment. So for you, you know, non cyborgs or half cyborgs out there is Yancey refers to people as is just a little bit of holding back early. So you maintain your composure because you will lose it eventually because this mm-hmm. course is going to do it to you and it's gnarly and gritty and, and slick and grimy and bushwhacky. And so um, just making sure you manage your effort appropriately or yes. somewhat early. And I have a I have a view on the 15K that it is no different than the 3K. Okay. It's once again a time trial. It is not a pack race. Even in the pro wave, there's no momentum gained by being in the pack. You can't draft on this mountain. There's no air resistance to overcome. There's no flak around rolling that being with people pulls you along. It just pulls you outside of or underneath your work rate that you should be at. We saw last year, Kempson went on the men's side in the 15K, and he wasn't even near the lead for a long time. He ran the best portioned out energy race of anyone in the race. He was moving on the last climb, the last descent, and through the obstacles at the end. That's it. There's no momentum of being in the pack at OCR Worlds unless it is the lead pack and there's like four of you and it's like that adrenaline of one of us doesn't make the podium. That's it. But even that, you can't fake for 75 to 90 minutes. What you can do, though, is destroy your race. So I believe it is a time trial. And if you are in the open waves, if you're in age group division, you are going to lose your wave on course. There is an entire field of people strung out over the entire course And when you get to these big obstacles with multiple lanes and people are retrying, it just breaks up the idea of pack racing. And the sooner you get that out of your head, the better. What you do have out there is an entire line of energy 
You're just playing hungry, hungry hippo out there. You start the race at the pace you know is your best pace for maintaining throughout the race, and you just gobble up one person after another. You gobble them up, you steal their energy, and you're on to the next one. And you are building momentum, knowing that my last climb and my last descent are going to be faster than anyone else around me. As soon as you get caught up and I'm racing this group, you're going to lose them. It's just a busy, congested course, and the retry lane throws everything off. So I think you time trial the 15K, you do not pack race it. I think you put your blinders completely on, and you ignore what everybody else is doing. You stay Mm -hmm. in your lane, so to speak. That's an expression, not like literal. And And you just focus on your effort, what you're doing, and not getting caught up. Because what happens is you go into an obstacle next to somebody that you're racing, in quotes, and you're three seconds faster through it, or they're 10 seconds faster through it. And this like cat and mouse game, you this jostling happens in these races nonstop. Mm-hmm. And when you start getting caught up in what other people are doing, you, know, you just like put your head down, worry about managing your effort for your best race over 90 plus minutes. And that will yield you your fastest time, which will yield you your fastest result. You, you couldn't be more right there. So staying in your own own lane there because of the back and forth nature of skill-based obstacles mixed with running. Yeah. It's just going to, it's just going to lead to probably you getting distracted. Uh, quick touching on, you said you play Pac-Man and these people are your fuel and you eat them up as you go. If you find this race not going well for you, mm-hmm. let's say you're the one falling off obstacles. You rip your callus open. You are the food Pac-Man is gobbling up. You realize you're going backwards. Okay. going to happen to a lot of you listening. We're painting this nice, glorious, best case scenario. And here, like the mortals out there, which I'm including myself in, sometimes it doesn't go as we're projecting it should go. What do you do to regroup? Because this is a course of mental swings, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people listening, 3K, 15K are going to have these ups and downs. They're going to fall off something, go back, have to restart, fall off something. The wavering of of momentum in this, this race is going to be astronomical for a lot of people. Yeah. So what do you tell them? And I know I want to, we're going to have to wrap this up shortly here, but what do you want to tell them? What do you, what does your head first go for those people? Well, the first thing that you can do is try to convince yourself that every single time you had to retry something that is extra rest period during a run interval. Mm -hmm. And it's tough to wrap your mind around that mid competition, but the facts of it, if you just broke it down and said, I got 30 extra seconds of not running here, that means you are faster after that. If you were in the middle of an interval workout and someone just said, stop, wait here, you're going to have to do like five extra pull-ups while you wait, but you got to wait for 20 seconds before you can do those pull-ups. And then you went out and ran your next interval. What would happen to your heart rate? It would start lower and it would rise slower and you'd have your fastest interval of the session. That's the way you have to approach a race like this. All right, I gave time away here, but it went towards recovery. And that's what you do. You are in that recovery line, and you are not in a retry line. You are in a recovery line. You are breathing. You are shaking your hands out. Put them above your head. Bend over on your knees. Whatever your strategy is, I don't care. But you are in a recovery mode, not penalty mode. That's the first mindset you have to get into. Love it. Second mindset is... It's never over until it's over. Yes. Because you're struggling on one thing, like the momentum shifts in this race will be astronomical, especially in the age group open fields. Like because you're stuck here and people are running away from you, doesn't mean that can turn right around later on in the race where then 
Like staying engaged, no matter how good or bad this race is going, is pivotal. More than any other race the entire year in OCR, staying engaged in these races, even when things start to go south, like you turn the corner and everybody's stuck at Skitch and you're like, ha ha, and you get through it and suddenly you just made up all the places you lost plus double that. Like you don't even know what's going to come up ahead of you. And so staying engaged, knowing that there's like a never die mentality because there's so many things to get in the way and maybe open back up for you later. So just staying in your lane. That's what I keep saying. Like pretend nobody else exists and you are time trying. That's very good advice in a race like this um, because the momentum shifts are going to be in the hundreds in your race probably uh, once you're out on course. And then you have to become the liar. You have to tell yourself that, all right, I got mine done early and they're going to have theirs late. And sometimes it's better to fail early than late because if you fail something early, you can convince yourself it was a mistake. It was a slip. I'm fine. My hands are still fresh. And now I'm going to roll throughout the end. When people fail things late, they tend to be there for a half hour because they're on the verge of their grip, not working and They're one retry away from being stuck. I, I ran a, a short course championship in Killington after the world championship. A few hours later, we ran a short course, a 2k. It was 10 laps of a, I believe a 200 meter course. Something like that. Uh, maybe it was 10 laps of a quarter mile course. So it was, it was a little bit longer, but we had a spear throw every lap. Oh boy. Maybe I don't remember the exact details. Maybe it was five laps of a 400 meter course. It doesn't matter. I missed my first spear. I don't think I'd missed a spear that year. And I was in dead last. And on the final lap, Isaiah, Ryan Atkins, Cody, and Glenn all failed something whether it was monkey bar or spear throw, they all ran clean until the last lap. And so I was in last place for two laps, felt terrible, dogged it, had a pity party. And then I was like, this is on camera. NBC's filming. Like I can't take last. And I got to work and momentum started building and I passed a few people and I went from fifth to second on the last lap. And the only difference was I was closing and they were fading. We failed the same amount of obstacles, but I got mine done when I was fresh. I did fast burpees and then I had a long time to run and I finished fast. They finished with burpees and then had to get up off the ground and get back up to speed. And it was a $2,000 swing in like 45 seconds. The only, I wasn't any better. I just failed first. Yep. And that's, that's the way you have to do it. All right. I failed early. They're going to fail late, but I'm going to be blowing past them while they're at their worst. I get to do my penalty while I'm at my best. Nothing wrong with running with a little desperation either. No, you just always want to be closing. Yep, always be closing. Is that from the office, ABC? Always be closing? Yeah, Yeah, always be closing. All right, I failed now. That's fine. I'm going to be closing the whole rest of the way. Speaking of closing, let's wrap this up. We could go for another hour. We're not going to. I'm going to cut us off mostly because time. However... If there's any last tips you want to wedge in there that are on your bullet points, do you have any? Uh, yeah, the last one is that if you are that person that it doesn't get better, it becomes apparent at some point that this ship has sailed and this is a lost cause. You are now out there for grit. As a yep. point of pride, do not be the person that gives up and walks off. I walked off an OCR World Championship course once. It's one of my top five biggest regrets about races in my life. So I'm some of the best. Killian, Hunter, 
They yeah, we've up. all walked Ryan Woods. We've walked off a Woods. course and none of us felt right afterwards. So just finish it off as a point of pride. I agree with that. And then the last thing is that your next race starts the moment you cross the line of your race that you're currently in. Right. I was just going to direct people. This okay, is more good. pivotal than ever to go back and listen to our um, multiple races in a weekend episode. I don't know, six months to a year and a half ago, somewhere in that window, right? We did that on a training Tuesday. I wish I could know exactly when it was, but go back. I think back-to-back races, is it's called. Do you remember what the title of it is? Nope. Me either. But it could not be more pivotal than like this weekend, especially if you're going three days in a row. And if you're wedging the 100 meters in there, who knows? So point being is go back, absorb what we told you today, and then go listen to that past episode and at least be aware of the boxes to check in between races and kind of what uh, what that all entails. We can't get into it today due to time, but that mm-hmm. knowledge is out there. And we go into great detail on that in a past episode. So go listen to that. I'm going to give a 15-second Cliff Notes version. Okay. A, your recovery starts the moment you cross the line. As fast as possible, change your clothes, get warm, get hydrated. B, do not binge and rest. You are going to stay off your feet as much as possible, but you've got to eat in bursts, in, in little chunks. you got to portion it out rather than just eating a giant meal and then just being sluggish and sit all day. You've got to rest as much as possible, but get off your feet at least every hour and move around, go through mobility, and don't do anything crazy. You don't need to drink 300 ounces of water. You don't have to have four protein shakes. You don't have to hit the exact correct ratio of everything. But you have to make sure you refuel refuel everything in a segmented fashion, not all at once. And you cannot sleep and lay around all day. But if you can get a nap, that's great. But you just try to live a segmented rest of your day that's totally based around recovery. 100%. Laying in your hotel room all day afterwards, eating and just laying around in between races is the absolute wrong thing to do. Getting back out, going for a half an hour walk that afternoon to get the blood flowing again, taking the stairs instead of the elevator. Like those little things sound stupid. That's actually going to keep the juju going for the next day instead of halting it. An object in motion wants to stay in motion. An object at rest wants to stay in rest. At rest, don't make sure you fall too hard into the rest category in between races. You're probably not going to recover especially if you're an afternoon wave of the 3K. So at that point, you just don't want to get too sedentary. (laughs) Right. Like we don't have 24 hours to recover. Instead, we're going to not get the hangover. We're just going to stay up all night kind of thing, which you don't stay up all night, but that kind of thing. Like you're not hungover if you never stop drinking. You hear college kids say that a lot. That's obnoxious, whatever. But that's that thing. We're never going to lay down long enough to have our legs fall off. I mean, yes, you can sit on your hotel bed and lay around and try to nap and do that, but it's okay to get up and walk to the ice machine for no reason. Go look around outside in between your rest periods. That's walk to go get dinner. That's a half mile away instead of take your car, those little things. All right, we're wrapping this thing up, Bracken. I don't know. Hopefully people get something out of this. Good luck. Go get them. Tune in and and watch the commentary. Tell them more. I'll be doing some some commentary for ORM. So go check out ORM and Matthew Davis' stuff. He's going to tell you where and how to watch. Sweet. All right, thanks for listening, guys. Good luck out there. Get after it.